Okay, everyone. All right, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome. Thank you for joining. Parsha in my life. Parsha's totalies. Um, exciting Parsha. I might share. I, the person didn't intend, at least not that I know of, to sponsor tonight's share, but I'd like to uh, give him that dedication. Alex Mayer. May Hashem bless you. Bracha and only, only good. Um, and much, 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 whatever, whatever you're looking for, whatever, whatever your heart desires should be fulfilled. Much bracha and mazel and only good. All right. So this week is Parsha's Torah days. And it's the, 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 really the Parsha is about Yitzchak. This is the one Parsha that's really Yitzchak's Parsha. And even in this Parsha, you're finding already Yaakov and Esau. Yitzchak gets very little individual intent, attention. And that's because Yitzchak is like so holy. He's so like, he, from all of our fathers, he's like the hardest for us to kind of reach because he's the most, and he's going to become accessible more when the days of Mashiach are. It says that then we will say to Yitzchak, we will feel most connected to Yitzchak. Yitzchak will connect to Yitzchak. That's going to be the Yitzchak era. So therefore it's, it is really connected to us very much because we're already moving into that time, Yitzchak's era. But Avram and, and Yaakov are more, a little closer to, 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 to the, human, the human experience. Because Yitzchak is super, super holy. He's super godly. He's very, very represents. He represents the left side, which the left, in this sense of holiness, represents um, inwardness. So his level of holiness is so inward, so high. So he's less revealed. Yitzchak is less revealed. So you can read more stories of Avram. You can read more stories of Yaakov. But Yitzchak is more like the hidden, concealed, inaccessible tzaddik. But in as much as we do read about Yitzchak, it's this week's parsha. Ve'ela told us Yitzchak. He even almost makes it into the name of the parsha. The name is Toldos. The next word is the Toldos of who? It's the Toldos of Yitzchak. These are the offspring of Yitzchak. So last week we have Yitzchak getting married. This week we have Yitzchak having children. Now, one of the episodes the Torah tells us about Yitzchak is that there was a there was a famine in the land, just like there was in his father's days, and uh, Yitzchak was thinking to follow in his father's footsteps. His father, when there was a famine, went down to Egypt. The famine was in their area, but not in Egypt. So it's Avram went to Egypt, to Mitzrayim. Yitzchak was going to go to Mitzrayim, but then Hashem appears to him and tells him, do not alter it Mitzrayim. Well, here it is in Pasuk, days, Perek, Chavah, Pasuk, days. Hashem, Hashem appears to him, alter Mitzrayim, do not descend to Egypt. Dwell in the land that I tell you. So in other words, he, 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 he stayed in the land of Israel. He, stand in the land, he, he stayed in the land of the Philistines, of the Philistines. The land of Plishtim is, is halachically Eretz Yisrael. He didn't go out. This is probably in the Gaza area. This is kind of where we're uh, in the south of Israel. This is where Israel, the, the south is really all the way, um, whatever. It's, that, it's that, 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 that kind of place of land. Anyways, that's where Yitzchak was. And he was told by the Abish there not to go out of Israel, not, not to go out of the land of Israel. Why was Yitzchak told by Hashem not to leave the land of Eretz Yisrael. The reason for that was because um, he had a special holiness that the other, same idea like we spoke earlier, Yitzchak had attained a level of holiness that the other forefathers didn't attain. They weren't supposed to, but it was Yitzchak's, Yitzchak reached the peak of holiness. Holiness meaning that his body was connected to God on a level like no other's. 
Why was Yitzhak so holy? Because Yitzhak was offered as, a, as, a, as an offering. Yitzhak was offered as a carbon, as an offering, as a burnt offering. And we know that a, a carbon becomes holy. Now the holiness of a carbon, of an animal that is offered, uh, is that there are certain boundaries on where you're allowed to take the meat of the animal. Once an animal is offered in the temple, you're only allowed to take it within some animal, depending on the level of holiness. If it's an extremely level of holiness, there's different gradations of, of sacrifices. If it's a very, very holy, um, if it's, it's a burnt offering, let's say, now, a burnt offering doesn't make a difference because the whole thing gets burnt on the, on the altar. won't make that much of a difference. But if it's, a, let's say, a, 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 a sin offering or a guilt, guilt offering, which is called Kodesh Kodeshim, it's the higher level of holiness, then only the Kohen can eat it. Even a non-Kohen is not allowed to partake in it, in the meat of it, and they have to eat it in the temple, in the courtyard. Then there's minor, uh, minor karbanis, which are not peace offerings, for instance. Their level of holiness is they're not sanctified to such a high level. There's a lesser degree of holiness. You can eat them, but only in the walls of Jerusalem, of Yerushalayim. You can't take it outside of Yerushalayim, even to Hebron or anywhere else. No. The holiness of Jerusalem only there, so you can eat those sacrifices. So you see that and a, a sacrifice, an animal that was became a carbon, is very, very holy. Yitzchak, he he was the he was his father sanctified him to be the carbon. Yitzchak, you all, all remember the chilling words when Yitzchak says, "We're going up." Him and Avram are walking alone, and they're you know they have, carry the firewood, and they have everything. Yitzchak says, "But where's the sheep?" And and Avram says, "Well, don't worry, we're, it's, it's all taken care of. Hashem will provide the sheep." Man, when Yitzchak was going to be the sheep. So Yitzchak, therefore, was sanctified with the holiness of a carbon. And for that reason, um, Rashi says, here's the words of Rashi. Rashi says, Rashi on its place, because you are a unblemished burnt offering. And you cannot, the chutzlaaretz, which means outside the land of Israel, is not fitting for you. You're too holy to go outside of the land of Israel. Now, even though carbon has much narrower borders. There's no, there's no offering in the temple that you're allowed to take everywhere across the land of Israel. You know, you can't take a carbon to Tzvat. Tzvat is a very nice city, but you can't take even to Hebron. It's only at the best it's Yerushalayim. Now, the level of a burnt offering that's even holier, it, it's only in the courtyard, inside the walls of the Beis Amigdash itself, on the Temple Mount. So, um, why is Hashem telling Yitzchak you're a burnt offering? And um, you have to stay in the land of Israel. If he's a burnt offering, then he can't even leave the Temple Mount. Yitzhak would have had to camp out or build a little tent on the Temple Mount and stay there. So the answer is we realize, we understand that things have not been, at that time, the, the full halachic application of holiness has not yet been established. So it wasn't like, it's that they, the, the ideas were there, but not to, to all the details. And in that sense, the concept that a carbon is not allowed to go out applies to Yitzchak. How are we going to define what's called out? It was loosely translated at that time. It included all the land of Israel was considered at that, like inside the walls of the Beis Amikdash. Outside of the land of Israel is like taking a sacrifice outside of the walls, and therefore it is forbidden. The Yitzchak, Yitzchak never left the land of Israel. Never left. He was always in Eretz Israel because Hashem didn't matter. The question we have over here is that um, very simple question. This that an animal you're not allowed to take out of the land is only once the animal 
is not when they see there's two stages when you when you offer a sacrifice. Stage number one is you 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 sanction it for the temple. You say this should be holy. The moment you do that, it becomes holy. But you're still allowed to take it anywhere. There's no prohibition while the animal is alive. There's no prohibition of taking it around here or there. You're allowed to bring it. It's, not, it's, not, it's only after the animal is actually already shechted, slaughtered in the temple, that's when the meat becomes so holy, and now it'll take it only to the very different boundaries that we spoke about before. So the question over here is, Yitzchak was meant to be an Ola, but he survived and he remained alive. Since he was never shechted, so then these laws don't apply. So why, what is the meaning to say over here that Yitzchak was holy, you can't take him out of the out of the base of the if he never made he never made it to the sacrifice. It was an almost sacrifice, but it wasn't a complete. And, and, and yes, we understand that he was that Avram Avinu intended, and therefore he he made him holy. He, he proclaimed him to be to be temple property, so to speak, to be uh, you know divine property belonging to God. That itself produces holiness. But we said earlier, I just mentioned that that holiness does not forbid, forbid you to take an animal away. If you bring your animal into the day, you're allowed to take it back out, even if it's holy. You're allowed to take it back out and then bring it back again. Only the meat you can't take out once it's already chef. Yitzhak wasn't chef. So the answer that is given to that in the Mepharshim, they say that Yitzhak was chef. Even though he wasn't, he was. There's a very uh, a common phrase the sages always use that the ashes of Yitzchak are piled in front of Hashem on the altar. What do you mean? What do you mean Yitzchak's ashes? As if Yitzchak was burnt. Yitzchak never got burnt. He, he, he came off the altar, went home, got married, had children, and lived a long life. He was 37 at the time of the Akedah. Yitzchak lived in this world till 180. He's the longest living one. So far, it's interesting. See how... The Torah is so mysterious. He's the longest living of our patriarchs. Lived way more than Yaakov. Um, like 30-something, 30 37 years longer than Yaakov. Man, more. Um, 40, 40, 43 years, sorry. 43 years he lived longer than Yaakov. And he lived uh, five years longer than Abraham. Than Abraham. Yes, he, yes, he has the least, the least information. But what, what we do see is from, one, from 37 to 180, so he still lived there, whatever, 150 years or a hundred less, 147 years. But Yitzhak still lives after the Akedah and he's living as a normal human being. I mean, obviously a big tzaddik. So he didn't die. So what do you mean his ash is on the Akedah? So it is explained that when Avram turned around and Hashem told him that he can't slaughter Yitzhak, he can't offer Yitzhak and he can't burn him on the altar. Avram turned around and he saw a ram. This is from two weeks ago, part of the Akedah. He saw a ram that was scrambling in the bushes. He was caught in the bushes, in the thorns. So he went and he got the ram, and Avram Avinu offered up that ram. It's not like he, he left it with good intentions. He did an action. He, he offered, slaughtered the ram, took the blood, sprinkled it on the, on the altar, and burnt the ram. And the verse, the Pasuk uses the term, He offered it up, he offered the ram up, as a ola, as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Now, what's the emphasis in the place of his son? So the sages say, every single activity he did with the ram, he said, let this be considered as if I did it with Yitzchak. When he shechted him, he said, let it be considered. And Adam felt that way. In other words, his devotion and dedication at that moment to God was so powerful that had it been Yitzchak, he would have been doing it with the same love for Hashem 
because Hashem is commanding him, he's fulfilling God's commandment. So he said, let the offering of, a, of the of the shechting be, be as if it was Yitzhak. Let the sprinkling of the blood, let it be as if it was Yitzhak's blood. And the burning of the animal and then on the altar was also considered as if he burnt Yitzhak. And that's why Yitzhak is so identified with that ram that the ram's ash is Yitzhak's ash. And therefore, technically, Yitzhak is alive and he's walking around. But his body is as holy as that ash that was burnt on the Mizbeh, like a carbon that became burnt up to God. That's the, that's, that's the idea. And that's why Hashem says to Yitzhak, you can't leave the land. Here's, however, a little bit of something that needs to be understood, just a little bit more Talmudic kind of a discussion before we get into a deep uh, Hasidic understanding over here. What's the, what, we're, we're making such a big deal of saying that his, the ashes of Yitzhak are piled the sages use the term when they want to speak about the one of the the, the, the merit of the akeda. The reason why the akeda, the, 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 the offering or the binding of Yitzhak is so special. How is it currently affecting the world? How is it currently? We know that the Jewish people reap the rewards from that act forever. It's still standing by us today to protect us from negative decrees and all kinds of things. This heroic act, both of Avram and Yitzhak, they were both willing to go through with the akeda. But and it's considered as if it's a current. What's the current element of it? Why is it now? Because Yitzchak's ashes, the sages say, it's a term that the sages use, Medrash Tanchuma, in Teres Kahanim, in Yerushalmi, uh, in various different places, the sages use the term that Yitzchak's ashes is currently on the altar, which seems to be emphasizing very, very much the idea that the greatness of the Akedah is Yitzchak's, that his ashes are on the altar. So we need to understand the significance of that. Why, why, why the big deal of the ash? I mean, it was the greatness of the act. Why the leftover ashes? You say, well, that's the that's the memory of it. That's that that's something to be a tangible reminder. But really, technically, we really have a problem because by if we say again, it's not Yitzchak's ashes. It's technically it was the ashes of the ram, but the ram is Yitzchak. It's kind of Yitzchak's identity is now uh, transferred to the ram. So it's as if the ram is Yitzchak. It's like an extension of him. So those ashes are Yitzchak's ashes. But we know that when you, in the Beis Amigdosh, whenever they offered a ram or any other type of an animal, they did not leave the ashes on the altar. It's a part of davening that we see, we say every day by Shachris. Maybe you've noticed it, maybe you didn't notice it, but there's a part of davening in which we are reading a portion of the Torah from Leviticus, from Vayikra, Parshat Tzav, where it's a commandment every morning, the opening service in the base of Middash was the removal of the ashes from yesterday's sacrifices from the altar. It's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to, it's called Trumas Hadeshen. It's a mitzvah to lift up the ashes. The Kohen would come and there was a whole, it was a whole big deal. Everybody wanted to do it. So they had a raffle. And then uh, in, the, in the early days, they used to have a race. And then someone, the Kohanim would race and whoever would get there first, literally in the base of Middash, they would race up the ramp. Whoever we get was the winner of the race, we get to do it. Then they changed it because it got dangerous because one guy pushed someone off and he fell down, he broke his leg. So the sages said, no more races. From now on, they're going to do a raffle. But it was, it was a very special thing. What were they doing? A Kohen would go on to the Mizbeach, take a shovel full of ashes, remove it from the top of the altar and put it on the side of the Mizbeach. You put it next to the Mizbeach and a miracle would happen. The, the pile of ashes that was next to the altar would get swallowed in the earth. I don't know if people can see it happening or what, you know, when it would swallow, but it somehow would disappear. 
And it was known that it would get that. that. Now, that was, that, that was one part of the mitzvah. And there's another mitzvah. That was only one shovelful. Every morning, this is the way the, 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 uh, the opening service in the temple, every single day, rain and shine, all times of the year, summer, winter, Yom Tev Shabbos, Yom Kippur, doesn't make a difference when. Every single day of the year, you could not proceed with the service of today until you didn't remove some of the ashes from yesterday. But that's only some of the ashes. Then there was a second phase. Because as I mentioned, they would take only one shovel full of ashes and put it on the side. There's still a big heap of ashes. If there were a lot of sacrifices the day before, it could have been a big heap of them, heap of ashes. So there was a second mitzvah that the rest of the Kohanim would go up on. This was not this one Kohen who won the raffle, but the rest of the Kohanim, they would go up on the altar. They would all come with shovels and they would shovel away all the coals and ashes that were there from yesterday. And that, the mitzvah was to take it outside of Jerusalem to a place that had to be considered clean. The Pasuk says a clean place, not a holy place, because it's out of Jerusalem. It doesn't have holiness. It has the regular holiness of Israel, but it doesn't have the added holiness of Yerushalayim, of the walled city. But it has to be clean, which means you have to make sure that there's no, no dead uh, corpse or bones or, or you know burial place. It has to be a clean place, no tumma, and that's where you put it. Now, there is an argument amongst the, amongst the um, uh, Rishonim, the, the Talmudists, if this was done every day or this was only done when they saw it getting a lot. Because when it was becoming a very big pile, then they would take it out. Two different opinions. But whatever it is, there is, there is no, no Indian, if you can say, ashes do not belong on the Mizbeach. Ashes are removed in the Mizbeach, if that's the case. Good. We will say Yitzchak is what? Yitzhak is a sacrifice, and so much so that he got burned because his identity now is transferred onto the, onto the ram, and therefore the ashes of the ram. But why are they on the altar? They're not supposed to be there on the altar. Now, how long were those ashes on the altar? The Gemara says in Masech Tzvachim, <laughs> interesting Gemara. The Gemara says when the Jews came back at the second temple, how and they and they and they wanted to build the the, the temple after the Babylonians had destroyed the first one. And they destroyed it so bad, there's nothing really left over there. So when they had to build it. So the Gemara is asking how the people in the time of the second temple knew exactly where to build it. What exactly? Because the Mizbeach and the, everything had to be put at an exact accurate location, literally to the, to the you know, very, very perfect. So how do they know where to do it? So the Gemara says, that, you know, the base of English itself, they could have figured out because of, there was still some kind of leftover. You know, even though they destroyed it, there were still, you know, remnants of the previous uh, structure. But the Mizbeach, which is kind of on top of the earth, it was completely demolished. How would they know it? So the Gemara gives two answers. According to one opinion, this is in Sechtes Svachen, Tav Samach Beis. The Gemara says, um, one answer is, Rebbe Laza says, very beautiful. They had a vision. When they came back, they had the spiritual vision. They saw the Mizbeach built. In Michal Asara Godel and the Archangel Michal is standing over there. And what is he doing? They saw the angel Michal standing. So even though they knew it was like a mirage, it wasn't a real thing. They, they had a vision, but they knew exactly where to build it because they had this, this just like when Avram Avino, how did he know the spot? It says he looked at a distance and he saw the cloud of Hashem right on that spot. So that's how he knew it was there. How did they know? Similar. They saw an altar. And they had this smoke going up. And not smoke. They had um, a Michal 
a malach standing there and over. That's one opinion. Rabbi Yitzchak says. <laughs> Interesting that Rabbi Yitzchak is the one who says this. Rabbi Yitzchak says, no, you know how they knew it. They found Yitzchak's ashes. They think about that. You're talking about in the second temple era. This is already a, after they came. I understand if you say the first temple. Avram built an altar there, offered Yitzchak, and then no one really was really doing anything over there. It was like an empty place. But here you had already the first temple over there, and it was destroyed. A couple of hundred years, 400, and, and, and the first temple stood for 410 years. 410 years, Jews were there doing that. And yet, and then 70 years of that, and there was a, a force of destruction that came up. The Babylonians came up and destroyed it. And yet, the ashes of Yitzhak are still in that spot. Interesting. So what do you see from here? <laughs> that those ashes are really there. Why? What would be the explanation if halachically you're supposed to remove the ashes and move it to the side? So the Rebbe has a very interesting take on this. And he explains why. He said, just first from, from a very simple logistical answer. I mentioned our two mitzvahs. Mitzvah number one is to take one heapful, one shovel full of ashes, and that was a daily mitzvah, and put it on the side of the altar. That's not cleaning purposes, because it didn't clean the altar. It was just a mitzvah to shave off a little bit of the ash, put it on the side. And in addition to that, there was a cleaning of the Mizbeach, a, a preparation of the Mizbeach, which they would take the rest of the ashes, take it outside. And so the Rebbe says both these would not apply, both of them wouldn't apply to the binding of the Yitzchak. Number one, the whole mitzvah of putting the ashes is that it needs to be laid down next to the altar, next to the Mizbeach. He says, the, but that's only if the altar is an altar. So if you have a temple and the altar is considered an altar, then you can have it next to the altar. Once you have what we call you can have next to the Mizbeach. But before David HaMelech shows that, before God showed David HaMelech where the mountain is, and before they were instructed to build the base of Migdash, even though Avram Avinu at that very spot offered Yitzchak and so on and so forth, it was not considered yet a permanent altar that it should have the halacha of an altar. And since it's not called a mizbeach, next to it is not called next to the mizbeach. So there's no point of doing the mitzvah. You can't do the mitzvah because then you don't have next to the mizbeach because the mizbeach is not a mizbeach. If so, if it's not a mizbeach, how could Avram Avinu use it? We all know that before the base of English was built, actually not just before the base of English was built, when the, before the Jews came into the land of Israel and built the Mishkan, the big Mishkan, Mishkan Shiloh, that stood for 360-something years, I think 369 years. Before that Mishkan was built, and also the other Mishkans, no, there was a, there was, people were allowed to, you could make a backyard altar. Anybody. Every person had a right. If you wanted to make your own private altar, you could, and you were allowed to offer sacrifice. It was once the Beis Amigdash was built or the Mishkan and God chose a certain place, all individual altars were prohibited. Today's days you can't do it. You sanctify an animal, make it holy, which no one should ever do until we have a Beis Amigdash. If you do, it becomes holy. And if you take it to a private, uh, you know, next to your barbecue, you set up a little altar and you do it, you're in violation of offering a carbon outside of the Beis Amigdash. It's a very serious, very serious sin. Not allowed to do that. 
But before they built the base on Mikdash, it was permitted. So in Avram Avinu's days, it was permitted. You see, Avram Avinu, wherever he's going across the land of Israel, he's building Mizbeach. You're allowed to. And so too, the one on Hara Maria, on Mount Maria, um, is, was also not considered a real Mizbeach. It was considered a private altar. And, 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 and such a private altar, there's no, it, it, it's not considered Mizbeach. It's not considered real altar, so that the place next to it should be considered what? Next to the Mizbeach. So therefore, technically, the whole mitzvah doesn't apply. That's regarding the first mitzvah. But what's the second mitzvah? Second mitzvah is to take all the leftover ashes and take it where? Outside of the camp. But what was the point of that? What was the reason for that? We said before that that mitzvah is mainly so that we have space to make a new a new uh, maracha. Maracha is a new arrangement of wood. How do you call it? A pyre? What is it called? A pyre? What is it called? A, 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 um, a fire built up. P-I-E-R? Or what was that? Anybody know? It's a word like that. I, uh, I'm just not recalling the word that represents when you're stacking up wood and you're making a... any case, um, they... Um, they um, oh, so we understand in the base I mean the Shuir, there was daily service so you had to clean off yesterday's leftover stuff so you can put the new one but over here there wasn't going to be the next day another service Avram was a one time deal Avram comes up there one time brings Yitzhak instead he puts a ram and so it was going to be for hundreds of years an empty mountaintop and if that's the case, there's no reason to remove the ashes. And once there is no reason to remove it, then it's better not to remove it, but to leave it. Because once there is no reason to remove it, it makes more sense to leave it. Why? Because there is a halacha, interesting halacha, that once you put something on the altar, you're not supposed to take it down. That means... Certain things that even if they're disqualified, let's say some kind of a blemish happened with a korban. And, it and because of that, it was disqualified for the altar. But the kohen, the priest, was a little distracted and forgot. And he took up this meat that was supposed to be taken out and burnt elsewhere because it became disqualified. Let's say because of a, of a, of a negative thought of the kohen who was thinking to eat it at the wrong time. Certain things that disqualify. If the kohen, uh, um, uh, and balach is, if you bring it on the mizbeach, you're not supposed to bring it on because it's not meant for the altar anymore. But if you bring it on, you don't take it down. Why? Because the mizbeach is like gravity. It takes something, it consumes it, you can't take it away anymore. So really, hypothetically, the ashes, they're still left over. If they're left over, we should really do what? We should leave it there. But why don't we leave it there? We can't leave it there because or else you're gonna have piling of ashes, ashes, and you won't be able to make the new old, the new, the new pile of uh, the new fire. So the Torah allows you to take it off, gives you a mitzvah to take it off, so you can make room for the next day. But in a case like by Avram Avinu, where there is no mitzvah, so to speak, there's no preparation for the next day. So technically, then you can leave it on the mizbeach, and you're actually supposed to leave it on the mizbeach, and that's the reason why we say Yitzchak's ashes. Are on the mizbeach so much so that they, some of that ashes remained all the way to the time of the second base on Mikdash that they were able to know where the altar is because they found those ashes. Okay.
This is all an explanation of why it's not, not a problem to leave the ashes of Yitzhak on the Mizbeach. It doesn't really, really explain why that's such a big deal. In other words, where I said earlier that what? That, 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 that we say the greatness of the Akedas Yitzchak, of this binding of Yitzchak, how does God remember it? What does Hashem see? Hashem sees the ashes of Yitzchak on the Mizbeach, which means that it's a very, very, very powerful and it's something that its merit never ends, never ends. Super powerful thing. The question is, and that, it's, it's, it's not that, again, from the sages you see, it's not just the mere fact that a heroic, selfless, and utterly um, 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 sacrifice, the biggest sacrifice was done. They were ready to do the greatest thing for God. They were, a, they were ready to transcend Avram and Yitzhak, every kind of, of human, human condition and give themselves over to God beyond all calculation. It's awesome. I'm not asking why the merit continues forever. My question is, why are we pinning, here's exactly the question, why are we pinning that merit to the burnt ashes? Why is that the important greatness of the Akedah, that they are burnt ashes of Yitzhak on them? Again, other than you, the, the, the cheap answer you can give is that. That's how you have a memory. That's what's reminding. But obviously, God can remember without those ashes. What's the significance of having those ashes on the despair? And, and, and to intensify the question, it's actually, by, by referring to it as ashes of Yitzchak, it's actually not only not, not, not enhancing the situation, it's actually de de decreasing it. It's diminishing it. Why is it diminishing it? We know that one can alter a physical object to the greatest alteration without eliminating it completely. The strongest way to alter something and to change something is through burning it. In other words, when we want to destroy something, get rid of, get rid of the evidence, so to speak. There's various different ways. You can tear something, uh, you know, scatter this, that. But there's still somewhat of the original substance. How do you destroy something to, almost to the verge of it, eliminating it completely from existence? So the burning is the, is the, is the, is the, is the, is the most destructive force to destroy something. And therefore, when you burn something, the object you burned is considered Something is left over. The ashes are left over. The ashes are considered that it's not the original entity. It's something new. It's not. Where do we find that? What do you do with chametz on Pesach? Chametz, we have to destroy chametz. So there's an argument. How do you get rid of chametz? Some opinions are you can, you can get rid of it in many ways. There is one opinion that says, and that's the way we follow in terms of our custom, is that the real way of getting rid of chametz is only through burning it. Erev Pesach, we burn the chametz. Because that's the highest way of riddance. But behold, you still have the ashes. You know, you burn it, and you throw, you know, everybody runs, goes running out of Pesach, and you have those last cookie or last, last roll, and you're throwing it in there or half a bagel. And you know, you're supposed to stand around and make sure you burn it early enough that it's, it's not, it's ashes. Once it's ashes, then you're okay. But ashes are ashes. It's ashes of the original, of the original substance. The answer is halachically, once something is burnt, it's considered already 
that doesn't exist anymore. Whatever is there is considered a new entity. It's like a metamorphosis. It's a new thing. It's not what once was. If that's the case, we're trying to remember Yitzchak, Yitzchak, Yitzchak. <laughs> but if Yitzchak is now ashes, so the ashes of you actually makes us forget Yitzchak. The greatness was that Yitzchak was sacrificing himself. Yitzchak was willing to die. Great. But you don't have Yitzchak. If you're looking for a reminder of Yitzchak, there's no Yitzchak there. If there's anything that has taken you away from Yitzchak, if Chas Shalom, you know, Yitzchak is buried, that doesn't destroy Yitzchak as much as burning him. So when you're saying the ashes of Yitzchak, you've eliminated Yitzchak. Question number two. Um, part of the procedure of a carbon is actually the burning. Okay? You shech the carbon, you sprinkle the blood, and then you burn. The Torah makes a big deal of the scent. Now, obviously, we understand that God does not have a, a some kind of a fascination or some kind of a, you know, um, a, uh, thrill or pleasure of smelling burning meat. But yet Hashem says it's a pleasant smell. We understand it's a spiritual thing. When the animal gets burnt, and it gives off this aroma of the flesh burning. And that, it rises before God and it's considered that smell. We find it already by Noah. And when Noah offered carbonos, what caused God to change his mind? And, or what elicited Hashem to make a covenant with the world, never to destroy the world ever again? Hashem did it when? When he saw that what? That when, when he smelled the sacrifice. Hashem, Hashem smelled it. The, the reach nechot. But we understand when there's a barbecue smell. When is it? When when do you have a set? When it's burning. But once it's ashes already, and it's not burning anymore. How long does something burn? Think a thing burns only when there's some of it that's not yet ashes. The moment it's fully ashes, it stops burning. Burning is only when there's something to burn, and the scent comes from when, from the act of the burning that creates the scent. Once your ashes is gone as the scent. So the whole big deal of a carbon is what? Is the is when it's not ashes, is when it's burning. So two things. First of all, if the quality over here, we want God to constantly see Yitzchak's face. See that Sadiq who was willing to give everything away for God, his very life, his very being, and die al Kiddush Hashem, then by showing him ashes, you're showing him something else. Right? So there's not it. That's number one. Yitzchak isn't here. And the act, you'll say, well, Yitzchak isn't here. But the act of the Akedah, which was so, uh, the, which was, for whatever reason, so appealing to God and so, so evoking by him, well, that act is also gone once it's ashes. Because there's no more of the burning, which is the scent that is related to it. That's not here either. So why would we say, again, why would the sages speak of the ashes of Yitzchak on the altar? And the answer to that is a brilliant answer. There are three ways in which the effects of a good deed and of a mitzvah can carry on even after the mitzvah was done. This case, Akedas Yitzchak. Akedas Yitzchak happened 4,000 years ago. We still are every day remembered for good. We are still, as we said earlier, reaping the rewards of this great mitzvah. It's constant there. So you, and, and many times we have people do something amazing and they cash in on it a very long time. Sometimes an ashama comes on the other world and um, 
They did one good deed, and that kind of is enough to carry them throughout their entire life. A good deed of a person sometimes gives them merit and merit and merit and merit. One amazing, especially if it was an, a hard, a difficult thing, and they came through for God, it's incredible. But there are three ways of understanding how an act of merit of a good deed that was done once continues to have effect later. One is the act was done. The effects of the act was also done. It's a one-time event. It happened once. It was done. There's no more ramifications of that act. But because the act was so difficult and the person who did it was, it created, it was such a noble act that the merit of that act continues later. Okay? So again, the mitzvah was done in the past. The effects of the mitzvah were also in the past. But the, 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 because it was such a great deed, there is, there is the, 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 the merit lasts for a very long time. When the time is needed, when someone needs that zechus from a great-great-grandfather who did something awesome, sometimes for a grandchild. Hashem says, I remember the good deeds of people for, for, for 2,000 generations. So something was done then. There's no more trace of that action. But yet, God is still counting it for the children. But there's another way. A way that's already far more persuasive. A way that's far more, I'm just that, far more compelling. And that is the act was done once. The action was done once. But the effect of the actions continue. So when the person later, many years later, needs a merit, even though the act he or she did is not here anymore, but since the impact of that act is still continuing today, they can still be rewarded for the act they did then because the impact is now. Perfect example of that. Someone does amazing act of tzedakah. They give a lot of tzedakah. They built a hospital. They built a yeshiva. They built a mikvah. The act of tzedakah was done one day. They pulled out their checkbook. They gave $5 million and they built this awesome thing. So when did they do the mitzvah? Only once. But the effects of the mitzvah are all the good deeds that are done in that shul, in that center, in that, all the people that use that mikvah, all the, all, the, all the children that learn in that school continue to learn, and all the people who are educated in that school and their children and children's children. These are good investments because you're actually cashing in for you know, they're, they're all impacted for generations and generations. So even though the act of the mitzvah was done once, but the effect that you save a person's life, for instance, so you, the act was only done once, but you saved the person's life and they can continue living. So all their good deeds that they do are credited to you and all their children's good deeds that they do. So because the effects of what you've done has repercussions to a later time. So it's more than in the first case where it's just such a good deed so we can, we have the payoff is for a long time. Here it's actually producing dividends later as well. But then there's even a third way, much stronger, even more compelling. And that is when you have an act of a mitzvah where the act is a perpetual act. The action itself continues, it continues, 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 and it doesn't go away. It doesn't wear off. The action itself is an ongoing activity. So it's hard to find a, an example that I'm going to give you an example in a moment of such a mitzvah where the mitzvah goes on forever. Like they say, giving is like saying, you, you, what is it? There's a, there's a, there's a radio ad uh, uh, the, the giving that goes, that lasts forever, or the giving that gives, I don't know, forgot already the, uh, I forgot the, where it comes, 
that keeps on giving. It's where something is, oh, I'll give you an example of that. It's when you're giving, you, you, you put money in to a, for, a, for a charitable cause, but you, give, you, put, you, you do an act, and, but you set up a fund in which the, the interests are, so every single day you're giving because your, inch, your, your, your fund that you set up is one that produces continuously the um, um, interest, uh, whatever, and that um, um, and those dividends are actually being used by that school, by that organization, and so on and so forth. So then your act of giving, you're giving every day, even though you're physically not giving it, but you set up something which continues to give all the time. So where do you have something like that? An example. It says by David HaMelech. The Gemara says that David HaMelech went to, went to the base of Merchitz, which means he went to the shower. And David HaMelech was a very, very, obviously a huge tzaddik, and he was very, very sensitive to godliness. And he is sensitive to the doing of mitzvahs. And he felt one time, he thought to himself, that take a look. All the day, I'm always doing a mitzvah, I wear tzitzis. Tzaddikim used to wear talis in the olden days. They used to wear the talis and tzvillin all day long. So I'm always connected. But then he realized that when he was when he was without clothing, he didn't have a mitzvah. So he found himself mitzvahless, and he was grieving about it. It was bothering him. He suddenly realized he was circumcised. He says he have a mitzvah. So the question is, how do we understand that? Because he was circumcised, he has a mitzvah. Is it does it mean the effects of the mitzvah? Because he was circumcised, then. So the impact of that circumcision will be with him forever. So that's the effect of the mitzvah that lasts forever. But it can't be that. Because if that's the case, when David and put on tefillin in the morning, and when he put on his talus in the morning, the point of wearing a talus, for instance, is you wrap yourself in God's kingship. So when you're putting on the talus, you're wrapping yourself in God's kingship. You're accepting upon yourself God's kingship. Now, even when you take off your talus, if you, if you did talus well, even if you're now wearing your talus, the yoke of God's kingship, the awareness that you're subjective to God, that you're that you're Hashem's, you're under Hashem's authority, lasts the whole day. Or tefillin, what's the point of tefillin? To surrender one's mind and one's heart to God, one's intelligence and one's emotions, surrender it to God. Now you can do that in a way where you do it and it's over, or you can do it in a way where you feel it all day long, even when you're not wearing your tefillin, you're still feeling the effects of the tefillin that you're you've already devoted and. Surrendered your heart and mind to God already for the entire day. So David Amalek definitely, when he wore tefillin, he wore tefillin in a way that would last him all day long. So why does he have to come on to the mitzvah of Mila, of the circumcision, and say that's his only mitzvah that he has now? How about his tefillin that he had? Even he's now, even though now he's unclothed, but he had the mitzvah earlier. And the effects of the mitzvah, that's what we said before, uh, possibility number two, where the mitzvah is done once, but the effect of the mitzvah is done later, he had that with, I'm sure he remembered the mezuzah also, that he walked by, and he did certain things, right? You can say in the mezuzah, he didn't do the act of the mitzvah mezuzah. The mitzvah mezuzah is to put the mezuzah. That he didn't do today. But the tefillin he did today, and the ramifications of it could continue the rest of the day. So you have to say that by tefillin and by tzitzis, even though he did them in the morning, or maybe he, he had the tefillin on a half an hour, but now, a half an hour ago, but right now, when he's not clothed, he doesn't have the tefillin. So the effects of the mitzvah are continuing, but not the mitzvah itself. The mitzvah itself is not. So by circumcision, we have to say that the mitzvah itself continues. Why? 
Because there's two mitzvahs in circumcision. One is to circumcise by bris milah. One part of the mitzvah is to do the act of cir- circumcision. And that's what we do when a baby's eight days old. We make a big festival. We make a bris. That's the act of the milah. There's another mitzvah. There's a mitzvah to be circumcised. And every moment of a person's life, they're fulfilling the mitzvah of being. It's a state of existence. It's not an action. It's not, it's not, it's not an action you're doing. It's a state of existence to be circumcised. So if that's the case, that element, David HaMelech was fulfilling every moment. And since there's a mitzvah to be circumcised, it's as if he's being circumcised all the time. So he's doing the action. It's as if he's doing the action because he's fulfilling the mitzvah of being circumcised. It's as, it's as if that mitzvah is continuously happening. And that's the explanation of why the sages say the ashes of Yitzchak are burnt on the altar. They don't mean memorabilia. They don't mean some, uh, what do we call it, a, a souvenir. <laughs> Let's go get a souvenir of Akedas Yitzchak. God has a souvenir of like That's not what it means. It means that the act that Avram Avinu was doing and in binding of Yitzchak, in which he replaced it with the ram. But in as much as Avram was concerned, he was willing to do with Yitzchak, as if it's happening with Yitzchak, that act continues through the generations. Avram Avinu didn't do the act of the Akedah 4,000 years ago. Avram Avinu was doing it, did it today, and he's doing it right now. This is a continuously happening. So it's not just a merit about the future. If that's the case, when we say the ashes, it doesn't mean the finished product, the ash, it means the burning into ash is happening right now. Then, not the finished, because if it's the finished product of ash, we had the question before. If it's, if it's ash, it's not Yitzchak. And if it's ash, there's no more reach there's no more karma. There's no more effect of a karma. The answer is, it's not the ash of Yitzchak. It's not the effects of the mitzvah. It's the mitzvah itself. It's this action that Avram did was set into motion in the cosmos that it's being happening continuously forever. So right now it's happening with all the perks. If it's happening, first of all, you have Yitzchak becoming ashes and you also have that transition which creates smoke, which has an aroma to it and that scent is rising to God to evoke the greatest merit for the Jewish people. That's the meaning of it. So now, okay, so now this, so this is all mainly more the Talmudic side of it, to get a, a sense of the awesomeness of the Akedas Yitzchak and, the, and how special Yitzchak is. But let's take it into a deeper understanding and how this applies to us. Because we're not Yitzchak, we're the grandchildren of Yitzchak, but we have to have some kind of a connection to, the, to all of this. And what does this mean to each and every one of us? So we all know as a Jew, we're a holy people. We're a holy people. Why are we holy people? Because we're God's people. We're connected to God. The question is, how much are we connected? Very connected. How much of us is connected? So first and most lot is our neshama, our soul. See, you know, a Jew, many people will argue we're connected to God because we do mitzvahs. Every mitzvah is a connection. A Jew doesn't need a mitzvah to connect. A Jew is connected by just being a Jew. You have a holy soul. You're being, you're, you're, you have a connection. You have an intrinsic connection. Your Sham is a piece of God from above. It is intrinsically connected. So why do you need the mitzvah? The answer is it's not enough for the neshama to be connected. You need the body to also be connected. And even though the neshama is in the body, so 
come as a body is connected. Yeah. But that's only secondary. The Nisham is connected. And since the body is a, a, a vessel and a container for the soul, so being that it is a container, it too it rubs off the holiness rub. So is a Jew holy only as Nisham or is Jew's body is holy? A Jew's body is also holy to a certain degree. But obviously we understand that the holiness of the body is much less than the holiness of the soul because the soul is a piece of God from above. The body, you know. But it hosts the whole. So, oh, but when you're doing a mitzvah, what happens then? When you do a mitzvah, what happens? The mitzvah is being done with your body. An neshama that doesn't have a body can never do a mitzvah. Can't light Shabbos candles if you're a soul. Can never do it. You can be the most devout, holy rebbitzin with the most spiritual intention to be the most fiery soul. There is no way you can light a Shabbos candle if you're not in a body. can't do it. The mitzvah is that a body, a physical human being in this world should light a Shabbos candle. The mitzvah is that a physical human hand should give tzedakah. It has to be in a human. Oh, so that, that engages the body. So now when we do mitzvahs, we're extending the holiness from, part, from, from being partially holy to be more holy because much more of us, what does holiness means? Much more of us becomes attached to God. Okay, so who's holy? The neshama holy or the body holy? Well, the more mitzvahs you do, the more thorough the holiness is. The more all-encompassing the holiness is. It encompasses even the body. Yes, but there's still a major difference. The soul has no other business but being holy. The body has other business it needs to take care of. Bodies do a whole lot of things that are not necessarily mitzvahs. Bodies cook, bodies sleep, bodies exercise, bodies shop, bodies, I don't know. Bodies are bodies. And, they, and we do a whole bunch of stuff that are not always doing mitzvahs. And that is that part also holy. Well, obviously, because you the same part of the body you once did a mitzvah with, it lasts. But still, there's a section of the body that is not integrated with God. Because right now, the body and the muscles of the body are contracting, expanding, and contracting, and moving, not in the process of a mitzvah. So there is some bit or some part of you that's not one with God. So there's some degree of honor. And in that sense, we will understand that tzaddikim are much holier than regular people. Even though we all have souls, but why? It's one of the reasons tzaddikim are much holier, because they do much less with their body that is not godly than we do. We sometimes do mitzvahs. They always do mitzvahs. So much so, like we said, David Amalek, he was mitzvahless for a minute. He was going crazy. He totally figured out that he has his bris milos, and then he could, ah. But other than that, you know, but for us, okay, we're, we're perfectly fine. Three hours go by and we didn't do a mitzvah. We're not like, you know, we're not completely, you know, going crazy. So our bodies kind of are connected to God in as much as we do a mitzvah. But that thought, is it possible? Here's the question. Is it possible to extend that holiness outside of the realm of Torah and mitzvahs? As being humans, there will always be certain actions, no matter how holy you are, which are not directly a mitzvah. Breakfast is not directly a mitzvah. Dinner is not directly a mitzvah. Sleeping is no mitzvah to go to sleep. There's no mitzvah directly to shop. There's no mitzvah directly. It's a nice hygiene, personal hygiene, to shower, to brush your teeth, to do things. These are it's all important and responsibility of the person, but there's no mitzvah in the Torah to do that. So the question is, 
So there will always be sections in our lives that are outside of holiness. So in the end, and now you might say, well, okay, so I'm not so holy all the time. We have to redefine holiness for a moment. This is very important for today's discussion. This is very important. You might say it's nice to be holy. I feel privileged that sometimes I can be holy. What's wrong if other times I'm not holy? You know what it means? Holy means one with truth, one with what's really real, one with eternity. What does unholy mean? Outside of God, disconnected. What that really means is not eternal, temporal, temporary, and nothing. Finite. It exists. Tomorrow it's not here. It's a huge loss not to be holy. And it's a huge, huge gain to be holy. Because when you're holy, you're one with infinity. You're one with truth. Because you're now melting yourself into godliness. So the question is, what's with the areas of our life that are outside of direct activities of mitzvahs? Can we make them also holy? Well, yes, we can. And there are two levels to that. One level is called, all your deeds should be for the sake of heaven. That's a, it's a Mishnah, it's a, a teaching in Pirkei Yavis, chapters of the fathers, about which Mishnah it is, but it says over there, all your deeds should be for the sake of heaven. That means all your deeds, even if it's your deeds, even if it's a simple lunch, make sure that it's not just lunch. Make sure that God, you're taking God into the consideration in that action. Lunch should take God into how? By thinking. I'm eating lunch now, but it's not just because I'm hungry, I'm eating because I need strength. And once I'll eat and I'll get strength, I'll be able to do mitzvahs better. I'll be able to study Torah better. I'll be able to be kinder. I'll be more patient. And people will come and I'll be able to be kinder and do a mitzvah and give tzedakah and visit the sick or, or go about my business doing mitzvahs and doing good stuff. I need to eat. Same as also going out and earning a living. You need to have money so you can send your kids to Torah schools and to buy kosher food, which costs more, and to have all the other mitzvahs that you have, to make Shabbos every week. Gentiles and others have, have, have Thanksgiving once a year. We have Thanksgiving every Shabbos. It's a, it's a feast. It's a, it's a cost a ton of money. How do you do that? You have to work all week. So then everything you're doing is for the sake of a mitzvah. Even if it is not a mitzvah, it is an, it is a, it is an attachment to a mitzvah. Because it becomes attached to a mitzvah, it is secondary holiness, right? It too becomes holy. It's secondary holiness. Okay. But it's still a non-godly act for the sake of a godly. So how much is God permeating that act itself? By considering God, you're much closer. You're in the, you're in the godly zone but is it attached to God literally? Is it one with God? No. You're eating matzah. That action, that physical action of crunching a matzah is one with Hashem because it's his will that you eat the matzah. His, his commandment is now compelling your mouth to crunch. Your physical jaws and lips and that action is godly. It's one with God. The matzah being an object of holiness is now holy. There is a, you know what's going on over here? There's an assimilation of the creation into the creator when you're doing a mitzvah. But when you're doing something for the sake of a mitzvah, going back to eating lunch, when you're eating lunch, breakfast or whatever it is, that action is not integrated with God. 
Because it's it's a human action. It's not a mitzvah. But because it's for the sake of a mitzvah, it's in the neighborhood of God. You understand? It's in the zone of godliness. It's close. It's in our outer circle, but it's not yet attached. So is the, can we do better? Can we do even better than that? Well, there is a, even a better way. You know what the better way? The better way is what the sages say. In all your actions, know him. In all of your actions, you should know God. That's much better than I'm doing it for the sake of heaven. In all your actions, knowing him means that when you are eating an ordinary lunch, it's not just because tomorrow you will serve God with that energy. It's because at this moment, you're so filled with admiration of this awesome God who gave you the food. And you're actually feeling God while you're eating. You're not thinking about your, your, experience, your enjoyment. You're thinking about, wow, God is so cool. He has spicy taste. He's got crunch to him. He's got all these like such, he's so innovative. He's so creative. All these incredible colors uh, and a fruit bowl, you know, whether the purpleness of uh, blueberries or the dark blue of the blueberry or the red of the strawberry and the shape of it and the, and the awesome orange taste of the, of the orange and the tangerine and that other melon kind of feeling with the melon. And, and there was, I mean, you, and, 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 and if you're really tuning in, you, you're feeling God's sweetness and God's beauty and God's all incredible intelligence of creation. It all comes from the earth out of nothing. So many different, you know, when we need to go make different ingredient cakes, we have to go buy all kinds of, you don't have one ingredient, you can't do it. But God has only one thing, earth. And from that one earth, he creates a, a gazillion different things. You can, a person really tunes into this. You can be doing all of your physical activity and feeling God so much in those activities that you're knowing him, not because tomorrow you'll gain from it a connection to God. Now you're gaining a connection to God. That is on a whole new level. Here is your ready. You can say integrated. But Sadiq who does this doesn't forget God for a moment. This person is consumed by godliness all the time. Well, not exactly. Because it still doesn't compare to the mitzvah. The mitzvah or the object of the mitzvah or the human act of the mitzvah is, is complete integration with God. Complete identification, complete assimilation. When you're doing something with divine awareness, you're cognitive of God, you're closer to God, but it's still your action. So you're very close, but you're not all the way there. Is there a way? where there should not be one aspect of a person's life that has not fully integrated and fully assimilated into God. We would think the only hypothetical way of doing that is to do mitzvahs 24-7. But that's not possible because we're human and there are, there are aspects to our life. We have to earn a living. We have to, and even if we have the best intentions, you're still very close to God. You're in the inner circle. We spoke earlier, there's an outer circle. You're in the zone. There's zone zone B, that's like the more the outer circle, and then there's zone A. And then there's the mitzvah itself. So when you're doing things for the sake of holiness, then you're in zone B. If you're doing, if you're doing things without, and God forbid, if when a person does things and they're totally oblivious to purpose and to Hashem, and they're just thinking about themselves, sadly, we all go there. Then in those areas, we're disconnected. Then we're in the unholy. Not bad, but just not holy. 
If we are doing things, as we said earlier, we do things for the intent of serving God. We're in zone B. We're much closer. When we're doing things and we know him while we're doing it, we're in zone A, but we're still not in bullseye. Bullseye is a mitzvah. A mitzvah is the complete connection. How can a person extend the bullseye to their entire persona, to their entire being? And the answer is Yitzchak. That's Yitzchak. Yitzchak is the only one who achieved it on the highest level. Yitzchak is the person whose body became holy to the point that there was no nothing sticking out. His entire being, his flesh and blood, every part of his body, his bones, his sinews, every element of his entire existence became totally melted into God. It's only Hashem. There isn't one tiny moment or aspect. There's no physical activity in Yitzchak's life that is not pure divine. It is divine. It's not human. It's divine. It's not material. It's godly. How? Let's get there in a moment. This process that I just discussed, there is holy, that's bullseye, there is the zone A, there is zone B, and there's outside, is demonstrated in every sacrifice. Because what's the idea of a sacrifice? A sacrifice means attachment to God. Sacrifice is in the temple. Karban, karban comes with a rove, coming close. When we offer a karban, psychologically it's supposed to mean not just the animal, it means yourself. You are bringing yourself close to attachment to God. What happens to a sacrifice? What happens to most of the sacrifice? It gets burnt up, especially a burnt offering. You take all the flesh, even the bones, you put it on the altar, burned up. Burning up of a sacrifice means it and God has unified. Literally, the fire is Hashem. The burning is the act of, of, of being combusted in God. So basically, it means... This, this represents our life, the mitzvahs of our life, in which we are combustiating, if you might say, ourselves. I don't know if I'm just making up a new word. I know there's some, I'm probably not pronouncing it well. But you're, you're becoming completely integrated. The mitzvah is taking physic, physicality and unifying it into, the, into God. That, that's a mitzvah. Oh, but there's leftover ashes. What are the ashes? So the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya something very interesting about ashes. He says, where does ashes come from? What's the concept of ashes? He says, the concept, what ashes are, it's the most material, material, material aspect of every object. It's the, it's the, it's the hardcore physicality that doesn't have anything spiritual in it anymore. Because he explains over there that every physical object is made up of fire, wind, water, and earth. Not in a way that we can see it, but it's all, these the four elements. They're all in everything. When you burn something, what happens? The fire that's inside, let's say you take a piece of bread and you burn it, hummus. The fire that's in the bread, I don't know exactly what, what, what that means in terms of the atoms, or whatever it is, joins the fire, goes out in the fire. The water and there's water and there's also wind. The water and the wind that's in it, that makes up it, makes a part of the, comp the, the, the composition of it, goes up in the smoke. What's left over after everything was extracted? What's the final leftover that stays over here that doesn't go into the fire? The leftover material. That is the earth of it. Everything has fire, wind, water, and earth. Earth is the most physical. So earth represents the element. So spirit, let, let's, let's, let's take this concept of earth. Earth, I'm sorry, of ash. Ash is the earth removed from all the other elements, that's ash. That's why in Hebrew, 
Afar is earth and afar is ash, almost the same word. So when you extract everything spiritual and you're left only with matter itself, which is too dense and too coarse, and it doesn't go on the altar. It doesn't join, it doesn't join the fire. It remains there. So what psych psychologically, what does that mean in our lives? It means those areas in our life, that we're at, they're too physical. They're too much us. There's too much ego. There's too much selfishness to them for them to become godly. It's not the mitzvah. It's our own doings. It's all of our material actions that we do in which we're doing our thing. So what are you supposed to do with those stuff? Is it okay? Okay, let's do with it whatever we want. Does that mean that there are certain, because we're human, we have an excuse to forget about God and completely disconnect ourselves when we're eating. We have the excuse to become completely divine, is severed from, from truth, from what is, what is real when we're exercising or when we're shopping or when we're doing business or when we're doing anything else that we're physically doing because we're just of our humanity. And it, it's, is it okay just to be a Jew when you're davening, learning? No, absolutely not. The question is, what do you do with ashes? What do you do with ashes? So there's three levels with ashes. <laughs> Level number one of ashes is that you can't keep it in bullseye. The Mizbeach is bullseye. That's like the center. That's the, the inner core where the divine and godliness uh, meet. You can't keep it there. because it's, So wish you at least put it in zone B. You take it outside of the camp. It's not holy. Outside of the camp, it's outside of Jerusalem. It's not holy. There's no holy. It's not in there. But it's a support for holiness. That's why it says, you remember I said earlier, what do you have to put the ashes? You have to put it in a clean place. It's not holy, but it's clean. That means it's clean because it too is supporting a good cause. I'm eating. I hope I'll have strength. Right now I'm in a godless state, but I'm eating now so that later I'll be able to daven mincha. I'll be able to daven. I'll be able to learn. I'll be able to connect to God in a much better way. Right now, so that's okay. Now, even better than that, if you're on a higher level, then you put your ashes where? Not outside. You put it right next to the altar. What does that mean? Those who put the ashes next to these a higher level. That represents taking the material, physical things and knowing God while you're doing them, even though it's not a mitzvah. But you're knowing Hashem in everything physical you do. You're aware of God. You're conscious of God. You see godliness in the things. In your business, you're not just running your business and, 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 and thinking that the money I'm going to earn, I'm going to give it to God. No, no, no. In your business itself, we keep on pointing out, uh, here's Ashkacha Pratis. Here's an opportunity to, to, to meet this person and have him do a mitzvah. Here I can do this. So you keep on finding the godliness in the business itself. That's much better. That's like putting it right next to the altar, but it's still not on the altar itself. And that's why that's the best you can do with ashes. You can't get better than that because anything material and physical will still not be able to be consumed and combustiated in God. You can't. Besides one human being who reached the epitome of total integration, assimilation to God, and that's Yitzchak. Because Yitzchak's ashes remain where? On the altar. Yitzchak's ashes are not put on the side. That's zone A. It's not put outside in the outer circle zone B. But even not next to the altar, it stays on the altar. Why? Hear this. The Rebbe says, brilliant. You know why? Because Yitzchak achieved the highest level of giving himself over to God more than any human being ever. Why? Even more than his father Abraham, more than Avram. Very simple. Avram Avinu was willing to give himself up for God. They took Avram when he was a young man and they threw him into a furnace. 
He basically said, God, God I'm yours. I'm your, I, I don't keep anything for myself. If it means dying at the stake, I'm in. They took Amram and they put him on the, on, on, in the fire. So he kind of lifted up everything. His body too was given up for God. Yes, but in the end, the angel came and made the fire cool. So his body did not get burnt in the fire. So there was no physical action of that body becoming becoming one with Hashem. Becoming There was no action. There was intention of self-sacrifice, but there wasn't the action of self-sacrifice. How about Yitzchak? Yitzchak will argue also. He almost got slaughtered, but he was saved at the, at the 11th hour. The angel said, don't kill him and have him stop. Yeah, but two things happened. Two things. Number one, the Midrash, Kirker, the Rebbe Eliezer says, fascinating Midrash. The Midrash says, Rabbi Yehuda, that when the neck, when, when Avram took the knife, I want to put it on my neck because you're not supposed to do that. When Avram took the knife and put it on Yitzchak's neck, Yitzchak died. He actually died. Yitzchak afterwards was resurrected. He's the first person to experience resurrection. He was resurrected and he made a bracha, Baruch Machaya Hamesim. We're going to, all the people who come back from the dead are going to say that blessing after they're resurrected. Yitzhak was the first, first person who did that because he actually died. That means he reached the completion of martyrdom. So here's an amazing thing the Mittler Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe, right? The Mittler Rebbe writes an amazing thing. He writes that Eliyahu, um, Hanoch, we know that Tzadikim, who were so holy and so so refined and so elevated that their bodies turned into some kind of a vapor and they went up with their bodies to heaven, right? Eliyahu went up, he sent it to heaven. Physically, I, I remember I was in Israel and I was uh, we, we were going to Eliyahu um, cave. There's a special cave where Eliyahu was hidden. And I remember thinking, hey, let's go to, why don't we go to Eliyahu cave? You know, his cave, Shmuel Anavi. <laughs> Then you have to remember, Eliyahu doesn't have a caver. He's the one tzaddik who's not buried because he ascended with his body up to heaven. Hanoch also, right? The tzaddik, he lived the days before Noach between. He was the one tzaddik and God took him up. He ascended like an angel and his body. But he says, even then, their body is still not divine. Their holy body, their bodies became so refined, so elevated, but they're not divine. He says, the people who died in the gas chambers, the people that were put into the ovens, the people who died on the order of phase in, in Spain, the people that were slaughtered during the Crusaders, the people who died al Kiddush Hashem, the Romans that were killed, or the Romans killed Jews for their because they wanted because they because of Rabbi Akiva, but not only the tzaddikim, all Jewish martyrs. The moment the physical act of the of the body dying for the sake of God, your entire body becomes a mitzvah. Because it's a mitzvah that's for, to, to sanctify God's name. So there, the entire body, every who did the mitzvah? Gave your entire life. There's no piece of your life. The entire physical and spiritual life was surrendered to God. These people, he says, the holiness of their bodies is holier and godlier and completely unified with Hashem physically. Not just their neshama. Their physical bodies more I read that statement today. I went crazy. That's an awesome statement. But, but all the others who had that died and they weren't continuing to live with such a body. 
Who's the only person who reached such a level who actually was, was martyred for the sanctification of God's name? He was martyred in the mitzvah and yet and yet was here to tell us tell us about it. Who was here to live afterwards was Yitzchak. Because he died, he was resurrected, and then the ram was done in his behalf as if he died. And his body is now connected to the ram as if, as if they're one body. And that ashes is his ashes. So Yitzchak's entire physical existence is one with Hashem. Therefore, the Rebbe says, by Yitzchak, there is no physicality. Everything, his entire being, there isn't anything that's sticking out. There isn't any leftovers. There isn't even one crumb of Yitzchak that's not one with God. Nothing in the middle. Complete holiness. And that's why by him, the ashes could remain on the altar. Because what's the point of taking it off? The whole point of taking the ashes off is because you have something of our existence that doesn't match up with God. So what does that say to all of us? Sounds great. Halavai. Halavai, we shouldn't forget God with our body. Halavai, we should always stay in the clean place, let alone, you know, going into the non-clean. At least we should stay in the clean and have good and have good intention. And even better than that, we should be able to find God in all that we're doing. But to Yitzchak, the Rebbe says we're supposed to be inspired by Yitzchak every day because we can do it. Because we all have a little bit of Yitzchak inside of us. But I want to add, he doesn't say it, but I'm going to add that since we're coming into the Messianic era and Yitzchak will be our father, right now, as we're coming into the Mashiach era, we can all bring ourselves to that point. Because once the world is already purified and once there's no more blockages and once the Rebbe says we've reached a time already when God is ready to permeate the world, there's no more resistance, then there's no reason why we have to keep up even the tiniest bit of our existence outside of godliness. We could make everything godly. How do you make everything godly? Just to conclude, the Rebbe says an example. doesn't say it in this talk, but he says it somewhere else. He says, even when you're doing things on the higher level of knowing him, there's two levels of knowing him. One is that while you're doing, let's say, I said earlier, you're sitting there and you're eating a bowl of, of, of fruit, a fruit bowl, and, I'm, and you're marveling of the delicious, you know, there's one way you can fill it up and say, ah, these strawberries are great. Where'd you get this? Why don't trade back to our reaction? Oh, these are good. You know, farmer market strawberries. Ah, great. So you're enjoying the experience. Nice. It's wonderful. You made a bracha. But the experience is a mundane experience. You're excited. You're excited because of your physical sensations. Higher than that is a person who's meditating on the divine. And you're so excited about the fact that God is so creative that he can make all these various different del delicacies. And you're, you're sensing God while you're doing it. You're also sensing You're also sensing the pleasure of the physical. So there's, 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 a, there's a combo over there. There's the physical enjoyment and the knowing of Hashem. But then there's even deeper than that. Where the knowing of God becomes so, so compelling and so intense in your life that there's nothing physical left over anymore. The entire physicality of every, of every action dissolved, there's nothing physical. It's only divine. And an example to that, the Rebbe says, is that when you're eating, for example, he says, you know that the, 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 the act of eating is a way in which you can take divinity and channel it into the food. And that's your entire experience in the food that you're eating. So that divine can permeate. Now that you're eating, the divine can permeate the physical. And you're so caught up. In other words, almost like a person saying, Oi, it's not that I have a fruit bowl and I'm excited. Then I think, well, God made it. How about the opposite? 
you open up a siddur and you look at the variations of all these beautiful blessings. Imagine, imagine doing that. Imagine someone eating like this. How about this? Every day comes lunchtime. Instead of eating, you're, you come to lunch, you're excited. You open a siddur. Wow, shahakal niyavitvari. What a beautiful blessing. Wow, boy, repriya eats. God created the fruits of the tree. Boy, repriya dama. God created the fruits of the earth. Wow, I wish I can say this. I have such an appetite now. I want to say Bar Priya AIDS. I want to say Bar Priya Adam. So he goes, he asks a rabbi, can I say these blessings? He says, no. If you eat a pear, you can say Bar Priya I have to eat a pear. Yeah, I have to eat a pear. If you eat a, uh, a peanut, you can say Bar Priya Adam. Oh, I got to go get myself. Adam, strawberries are Adam. This one is hate. So you go and you make a fruit, a fruit, a fruit salad so that you can make the blessings. And that's your entire experience in it. It's already a Yitzchak kind of a situation because there's nothing other there than godliness. So we have a lot to work for. We have a lot to strive for, but a little bit of it because we're Yitzchak's grandchildren, we can, we, can, we can strive for and reach for. And we can attain this, especially because we're living in a time that the whole world will live like this. This is the elevation of consciousness. This is the, this is the messianic era. This is when we're going into a state of complete assimilation and oneness with Hashem. May we merit that uh, we embrace this joyfully and happily and not feel like we're taking away from our experiences. No, our, when you, I'm going to finish up with one interesting um, idea. It says in Hasidus regarding this thing, how do you know if your body is healthy? How do you know if you're healthy? How do, physically, how do you feel healthy? When you don't feel anything, you know you're good. When you start feeling your head or you start feeling your feet, you know no good. And sometimes it's not even that you're feeling an ache. It just when you get up, you ever have that when you wake up, you feel like you're schlepping your body? The moment you feel like you're schlepping your body, it means that your body and your soul are not perfectly harmonized. And when I say soul, I don't mean spiritual soul. I don't mean godly soul. The fact that you feel yourself as something that you're pulling along, that you feel the body is heavy, you feel your limbs, it's a sign of un being unhealthy. Now let's take it a step further, deeper. Just like we understand that the relationship of soul and body is if you feel the body is an indication that the soul and body are not perfectly one. How about if we, in the soul itself, how about to feel Jewish? You have a Jewish body. You have a Jewish soul. A Jewish soul means that you, your, your godliness, your awareness of God is so powerful that you don't feel anything else but your, 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 your godly soul. And everything else that you're doing, even though you have a body, even though you're doing all the physical stuff that everybody does, but those actions, you don't feel them even because you're just tuned in with the divine. That's a very healthy being. You're really living because you're really one with Hashem. And Hashem is then, and then you can go on living forever. Why are we going to live forever? Because when you're attached to the divine, then you'll live forever. There's no aging. There's no decaying. See, everything is in our mind. Everything is in the consciousness. As soon as our consciousness will flip over, then we will achieve eternal life. We will transcend. Because all these ideas of aging and decaying and breaking down, these are all systems of creation. Once the creation has transcended the creation element and joined the creator, the creator is not subject to these, to these things. That's Yitzchak. And Yitzchak is the, Yitzchak is the example. Yitzchak is the... The demo, we all follow Yitzchak. Yitzchak is the perfect demo of a person achieving complete oneness with Hashem. So may we merit to see it all now and live that way.
or begin to live that way a little bit.